copy of scripture. We are in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 this morning. I'll be reading uh, to you this morning from the English Standard Version of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Titled this message this morning, Destined for Glory. Destined for Glory. This passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning is really a fascinating uh, passage of scripture. And what's really interesting uh, about it is that there is debate over who this verse is referencing. Some scholars say that all of these verses are speaking about Christ. And some say, no, these verses are speaking about man. I believe that verses 6 through 8a are speaking about and apply to man, but it is ultimately a display of how Christ, through his superiority, has given significance to mankind through man's submission to him. It has often been said that the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is a solid piece of advice, even though we would perhaps not want to say so, but it gives the pastor a balance in ministry. And we see this as really the very thing played out for us in the book of Hebrews. We will see times where there will be comfort given to the people, to the readers, and to the Hebrew people, and then there will be sections of strong exhortation that brings some affliction to those who are comfortable in their spiritual life. In chapter 1, the author has brought comfort to the afflicted by speaking on the superiority of Christ over all things, which means that because he is superior to everything, that we can trust in him to be our anchor in the midst of trials and threats of persecution. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he afflicts those who are comfortable by sounding a warning to the people. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now again, we will see that there is comfort for those who are afflicted. These Christians were facing the threat of persecution. They are troubled and perhaps they feel very insignificant in the world in which they live. But Christ gives them significance because Christ destines them for glory. 
One of the most significant problems for modern evangelical Christians today is that we are seemingly unable to focus past the here and now. We struggle with living our lives with eternity in mind. And so our thought process is we think of heaven as a nice little place that I will go to when I die, but I want a good life here and now on the earth today. If Jesus can help me have a good life or have a better business or have a better marriage or help me be more stable than I am, then I'm in. I want that. And I will think about eternity when I'm near death. Now, because we fail to live with our focus on eternity, we often struggle when we face trials in this life. Because we're focused on Jesus giving us our best life now. We're focused on what can Jesus do for me here and now in this life. And the church in America has no clue how it would respond if it actually faced any sort of persecution. In fact, I'd venture to guess that if true persecution were come to the church in America, it would free up many seats on Sundays. Even pastors today struggle in the church with how to handle things. Often when they are criticized, they are quick to bail out of ministry or at least bail out of the church that they are in to find another place that they can go to in order to deal with the issues. The reason they are quick to bail out is so often our focus is wrong. We're not focused on eternity. How do you think the Apostle Paul was able to be beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead, and still preach the gospel? He had the right focus. They say to the Apostle Paul, we're going to kill you. And he says, well, to die is gain. And then they say, well, well, we're going to throw you in jail. And he says, well, to live is Christ. You see, we have to understand that there's absolutely nothing on the face of this earth or outside of this earth that can steal away our glorious destiny that is found in Jesus Christ. Listen, I can endure criticism whether it's right or not. I can go through people saying things that are not true about me. I can put up with half-truths spoken about me, not because I'm someone great, but because my God is great and my salvation is secured by Jesus Christ. And that is great. And that is why on uh, one of the themes throughout this book of Hebrews is this theme of endurance. Holding fast to our hope that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10.36 puts it this way. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Did you catch that? We endure so that we can receive what is promised. Our focus is on eternity. We endure because our focus is on eternity. You want to get through your problems in life? your sufferings, your trials, you focus on eternity. You focus on the glory that lies ahead of you, which no one can ever take away. That is why we have in these verses, first, he says, uh, pay attention. That's what he said uh, way back in Hebrews, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Pay attention. And then he says, Jesus is superior to the angels. And then he makes it clear that God subjects the world 
to come to man, not to angels. And then the author cites Psalm 8 as evidence of this. When he says it has been testified somewhere, he does not say it because he can't remember where it was testified, but because he's emphasizing that it's a quote from God. He's trying to draw attention to God as the author of Scripture and God appointed man to the position he is in. God put man over all creation. Then look at verse 8. The author says, At present we do not see everything in subjection to him because of the fall. Man's position was overturned. Then the author moves to verse 9 and we see that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor and therefore he recovered what man had lost. In the world to come, man will reign in glory with Jesus just like God intended. What we see here in these verses is God's original intention, God's original intention stalled, and God's ultimate intention realized through Jesus Christ. Those are the three points I want to share with you this morning. First, God's original intention. God's original intention. We see two main points here. And the first is seen in verse 5. God did not subject to the angels the world to come. And so man is higher than the angels. Now, there is some debate on what the phrase the world to come is referencing in the Greek. The the world means uh, in the Greek the inhabited world. And so some people take this as meaning the messianic age in which would have been inaugurated by Christ at his first coming. Others take this to mean the future millennial kingdom. And so this is what it looks like. Both sides will say that God created man to subdue the earth and rule over the earth and that man lost dominion over the earth to Satan at the fall, which is why we read that Satan is the ruler of this world. However, at the cross, Satan was overcome. Now, here's the difference between the two views. One view says, yes, Satan was defeated, but Christ's victory will be finalized at his second coming and his kingdom rule and at the end of that 1,000-year kingdom known as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Satan will be loosed for one final assault on Christ's kingdom and he will then be defeated forever. That is a pre-millennial view or historic pre-millennialism and can also be what's called dispensational pre-millennialism. If you want to know about those terms, you can come talk to me later and we can discuss them. And so they will say that when this verse speaks of the world to come, it is speaking of the future millennial kingdom. That's the predominant theme in most Southern Baptist churches today. That's what most Southern Baptist pastors teach. That's what most Southern Baptist pastors believe. Now, there's another side where they say no. Verse 13 of chapter 1 makes it clear that Jesus is at the right hand of God and that his enemies are his footstool. They're at his feet and now he's picking up that same theme, but is a look forward to a consummation of the reign of Christ. The world to come is when Christ's lordship is consummated over all of creation and when all the promises and the prophecies of blessing are fulfilled in his final reign. So in one sense, Christ now reigns and is at God's right hand and he is presently in control of all things. Yet at the same time, we find ourselves subjected to the condition of our old 
realities, our fallen nature. So one side says this is a future millennial reign of Christ. The other side says no, it's when Christ returns to bring his people into their final blessing of salvation. That is known as the post-millennial or even the all-millennial view. I tend to lean towards that view. And I know that I'm in the minority of most Southern Baptist churches. But just to be clear, I've probably been premillennial, all-millennial, and post-millennial. I bet you I've been all three of them in my time in theology. And guess what? It's probably going to change again. So that's just to say, don't get wrapped up in all that, because guess what? Your view will probably eventually change. But it is to say, the point is this, that man is higher than the angels. And we experience a taste of what it is like to live under the reign of Christ but we will not experience it fully until a future date when we will reign with Him and we will judge the angels. Scripture is very clear on that. Our ultimate destiny is one that is higher than the angels because we will one day rule the world to come. But not only that, our original intention is described for us in Psalm chapter 8. And we move on to verses 6 through 8, which is that description of Psalm 8, we will see the original intention for man laid out for us from the author of Hebrews who's quoting Psalm 8. We know that David wrote Psalm 8. He very well could have went outside and looked up at the stars and began to marvel that God would even think of mankind. David writes, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And as David thinks further on how small man is and how great God is, he writes, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you even care for him? David is amazed that God would appoint man a little lower than the angels and crown him with glory and honor. God created man as his crowning achievement and gave him glory and honor. God gave man a position of authority to rule over all other creatures on this land. This is not new. It's spelled out for us. God's original intention is given to us back in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures, and, and that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, 26-28. Adam and Eve had the perfect environment. Perfect fellowship with God. When we look at man's original position, we understand that the fall was inexcusable. Adam and Eve lacked nothing. They had everything they could possibly want. They had it all. They were in complete control of the entire earth, and yet they wanted more. What did they want? To be like God. Adam and Eve are the king and queen of the original creation. They're in paradise and God 
walks with them, but it wasn't enough. Think of the authority that man had. It says in verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet, man had rule over the entire world, and Eve had the responsibility of ordering the creation under the lordship of God. The original intention was profound. Think about it. If the intention had been carried out, then as the descendants of Adam, we would know no sin. We would live in a world that did not know Sin. Now, to be clear, when we say that this was God's original intention, we're not saying that God was caught off guard by sin. We're not saying that the sins of Adam and Eve did uh, somehow confuse God. And we are not saying that somehow Satan got the upper hand on God. What, what we are saying is that somehow Satan got into mankind. And that through that, God's intention was somehow messed up. His intention was that Adam and Eve would live without sin. They messed it up. However, that's the message for the church as well. You know why? Because Adam and Eve, even though they messed up, were created in the image of God. And the message of churches of, for the church is this. Even when you feel insignificant, you're not. Even when you're walking through the midst of pain and suffering and hurt and heartache, remember, you are God's image. And that God cares for you, each and every one of us. And so we see God's original intention that the earth is to be subject to man and that man is higher than the angels and that man is the crown in glory and honor and, and everything is great in man's unfallen state. But something happened, didn't it? Which leads us to point number two. God's original intention stalled. Now, you say, well, what do you mean stalled? I chose that word very, very carefully. I like to say God's original intention stalled because I don't think that God's original intention was thwarted. Because nothing can thwart God's intention. I think what we see here is that His original intention is stalled. Look at the last part of verse 8. It says this, At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. In other words, look around. It's pretty evident that things are not presently under the authority or control of mankind. Why? Because of sin. Because of the fall of man. Look at the juxtaposition. Uh, I can never say that word. Look at the juxtaposition that the author of Hebrews uses. He says there's nothing in this world that is not under the dominion of man. There's absolutely nothing. And so that's begging for us to, to say, wait a second. That can't be true. Because we see stuff all the time that's not under the dominion of man, don't we? Then the author of Hebrews goes on to say, at the present time, everything is not under the subjection to man. 
The point is this, that the first Adam was created in God's image to have dominion over all of creation. Everything without exception was to be subject to mankind. That was God's original intention. That is how God created the things to be. But that is not what we see now. Something went wrong and something uh, went terribly wrong because man fell through sin. And that stalled God's intention. Look at how man tries to rule over creation today. Everything's tainted by sin. We have ecological disasters. Our rule over the animal kingdom is only done through intimidation. We can't even rule over ourselves, let alone anyone else. We see that power corrupts mankind and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It is a mess and the earth is cursed by God. Genesis chapter 3 makes it very clear. We are subject to sickness, injury, sin, death. All of the human race is infected by sin. I didn't say affected. Infected by sin. Man does not control the world. The world controls man and we are slaves to sin and to the fallen nature of our own heart. We murder, we hate, we war, we struggle with greed, power and suffering, adultery, fear, disease. We are filled with selfishness, envy, jealousy, prejudice, pride. We're gluttons, we're drunkards, we're immoral, we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to the worst kind of thing of all. We're slaves to death, we are doomed to die, and yet originally we were created to have dominion over the entire earth. Listen to what John MacArthur says when he describes it this way. Man lives in jeopardy every hour. Just at the height of professional achievement, his brain may develop a tumor and he becomes an imbecile. Just at the brink of athletic fame, he may be injured and become a helpless paralytic. He fights himself. He fights his fellow man. He fights his earth. Every day we read and hear of the distress of nations, of the impossibility of agreement between statesmen and a world that languishes in political and social conflict. Not to mention economic hardship, health hazards, and military threats. We hear the whine of pain from dumb animals and even see the struggle of trees and crops against disease and insects. Our many hospitals, doctors, medicines, pesticides, insurance companies, fire and police departments, funeral homes all bear the testimony to the cursed earth. We have a problem. And it's sin. And everyone is affected. In God's sovereignty, he has allowed wicked men and nations to rule. But there is a day that is coming when he will break them with a rod of iron and he will dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. So we see God's original intention Create the earth for man to have dominion over it, to live in a world without sin. We see that his original intention is stalled because mankind sinned. There's a problem. This leads us to our third point. God's ultimate intention realized. God's ultimate intention realized through Jesus Christ. If God's intention was stalled, then what's going to happen? 
Will man ever achieve any significance whatsoever? And the answer is yes. Look what the author writes. Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, humbled Himself and He took on human flesh, becoming a little lower than the angels, submitted to the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. When it says that Jesus tasted death, it means that Jesus experienced death to its fullest. What a turn our text takes from verse 8 to verse 9. It says, we do not see That's what it starts off with. We do not see, but then we do see. Did you catch it? In verse 8, he says, we do not see everything subject to man. And then in verse 9, what's he say? We see Jesus. God's original intention is achieved because his ultimate, ultimate intention is revealed and realized through Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam. We realize that Psalm 8 was not just a psalm about mankind, but it was also a messianic psalm that had its fulfillment found in Jesus Christ. Remember the risen Christ on the road to Emmaus? He speaks with the two people, that the two men, and he calls them foolish for being slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. And what did he say in Luke chapter 24, verse 26? Jesus says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? You see, the death of Christ was not some sort of afterthought. It was not some sort of shock. It was not some sort of thing that like God's up in heaven going, I cannot believe it. What am I going to do now? Mankind has sinned. His original intention was that man wouldn't sin. And then mankind sinned. And then in Genesis chapter 3, he tells that the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ. It wasn't an afterthought. The prophets predicted it. And after His death, guess what? His glory. The death of Christ was the means by which God ordained in order to rescue fallen humanity from their sin and in order to restore them to their place as was originally intended. The whole point of Christ's death was to restore mankind to where they were supposed to be. Don't miss the point where as the exaltation of man was being made a little lower than the angels. That was the exaltation of man. For Jesus, it was the depth of His humiliation. Jesus, God in the flesh, stooped down to the height of man's glory to bring about God's original intention because through our faith in Christ we are seated in the heavenly places with him if he is crowned with glory and honor then we share the glory and honor even though we still don't see it Romans chapter 5 verse 17 For if by the trespasses of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
And God raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Church, we can't miss it. God's ultimate intention is realized through Jesus Christ. 169 times the Apostle Paul in his writings uses two words to talk about the Christian. 169 times he uses two words. And those two words are simply this. In Him. In Him. That suggests an exchange. It's an impartation from Christ to us. When we are in Christ, we are so united with Him that we share in His glory. We take comfort not because we are great. Not because there's anything about us that deserves to take comfort. But in the midst of our trials and tribulations. In the midst of threats of persecution. Just like these Hebrews who had received this letter. We take comfort, Christian. Because we are in Him. We are not relegated to insignificance. We are in Him, O oh church. When, when Satan comes and he knocks on the door of your life, and he, when he comes calling and he tells our church, oh, you're just a nobody. You're just a, you're just a, you're no good. We can't, you can't make a difference. You're just too small of a church. You can't do this and you can't do that. And when he says, you're so small, you're just a speck of insignificance. That's just an illusion. You know why? Because on one hand, Satan's right. That in this fallen universe, our little church is a nobody. We are. So am I. Just a little itty bitty church that doesn't have much significance. But, as children of God, we are objects of His attention. As His children, He's watching over every minute little detail of your life. And oh, as His children, we are in him. Not only that, but there is not even an angel that will ever attain what we will attain. No lost person will ever experience a fraction of the glorious reign that belongs to the children of God. And what is even more is that reign has begun for everyone who is in Christ, you're a child of the King. Don't you understand that your worth is measured in Christ on the cross? And your significance is seen in the fact that Christ is on His throne. Take 
comfort. We can sometimes feel like a gnat on this great earth. We can feel unimportant and insignificant. And you may be one of thousands of employees at your job. And you may feel like no one appreciates you. And that no one wants you. And you may feel insignificant and like you can't accomplish anything. But I'm here to tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God, you, my dear child, have infinite value. You are child of the King. You will be crowned with glory and honor. And you may say to me, I don't see it, Pastor. I'm a nobody. There's no way. But I say to you, then see Jesus who is crowned with infinite glory and honor because He is our promise. He is God's intention for you. And through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, we see the promise of God's ultimate intention. He says, look at Jesus. This is my intention. And He paid the price for you. You are in Him. Don't miss the significance, church. You're in Him. In closing, I want to give you some practical applications this morning. First, do not neglect your great salvation, but instead have a focus on eternity. As believers, we have to stop focusing on the here and now. But understand we are destined for glory. And because of that, it changes our perspective on everything. We must live with eternity in mind so that we can endure our trials and heartaches and pains. If we see that Jesus suffered before He entered glory, we should understand that we too will suffer. Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher, said this, we should focus on the shortness of life in light of eternity. And we should do just that. We should focus on the shortness of life in light of eternity. Our future is that we will reign with Christ for eternity. And that should help us to endure anything in this world. Second, we should understand that we are now in Christ and we should worship Christ for what He has done for us. We should understand that we are now in Christ and that we should worship Christ for what He has done for us. Like Charles Wesley, we should cry out, Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Every time we have communion, we should remember in great detail what Jesus did on the cross. For the Apostle Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Daily we should be reminded of the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And daily we should be reminded that you and I, we are in Christ if we know Him as Savior. And we have all the benefits of the death of Christ applied to us. And therefore, we should live for Christ every 
single day. Thirdly, we should be reminded that if we feel weak, insignificant, despised, or like we do not matter, we should take courage. Because in Christ, we do matter. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. And though we have difficulty seeing it and understanding it, one day we will reign with Christ forever. See, the church is so caught up in what the world thinks of us. I just had a, an exchange with a friend this morning, Sunday morning. Said we're we have a pastor coming in in view of a call, and I was just exchanging with him. And in that exchange, he said, "Yeah, hopefully our church can grow because we reach the lost." And I responded with, "That's a nice thought." so many of our churches are focused on getting members and reaching the lost. There's lost people out there. Washington, Illinois is filled with them. But you know what? We are so caught up in worrying about what the world thinks of us. Or whether or not the world likes us. And I know sometimes I get in trouble because I'm famous for saying I don't care what people think of me. And people are like, well, pastor, you really should care what people think of you. No, not really. But I'm just like anybody else. I allow those thoughts to creep into my mind. Allow those thoughts to take control of me. Man, this happened for, to me just this Monday. Allowed those thoughts to come in and creep into my mind. I'm out there doing my morning run, you know, just barely moving. I felt like I was in slow mode. You know, one of those deals, barely moving. And I could hear the thoughts of the enemy. You're a failure. You're no good. What have you accomplished in four years at First Baptist Church? Nobody cares. How many people have you reached? What's going on? Is the church better off? All those thoughts creeping into the mind. Oh, but they can't take hold. You know why? Because I am his child. I am in him. I know Christ as my Savior, and his righteousness is on me. And I'm purified from my sin. And even though on this earth, I may be a nobody. 
even though on this earth perhaps there's a time when no one cares, God cares for me. And He has a purpose laid out for me. And that purpose transcends this life and this body and extends throughout eternity. Praise God. Finally, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, then you should be afraid. Listen, I understand that there are millions of people around the world that do not know Christ. I know that there are people that despise Christ and they thumb their nose at God. And I'm here to tell you that there is coming a day when people will cry out for the rocks to fall on them in order to be hidden from the presence of an almighty God. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. There's coming a time when the wrath of God will be poured out against all workers of iniquity. And if you wait until later to come to Christ, if you wait until later to be in Christ, you may wait a moment too long and it will be too late. Take your refuge in Him while you still can. Do you know Christ? This morning, are you in Him? We'll be standing down front this morning. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And perhaps this morning you'd say, Pastor, I I don't know Christ. I'm not in Him. And, And I want you to know this morning, you can know Christ as your Savior. You can be in Him. And maybe this morning you have felt weak and discouraged. Do you understand that this morning you matter to Him? He has a purpose and extends throughout eternity. And that we should be focused on worshiping Him for all He's done for us and stop focusing on the here and now because the here and now doesn't matter. So if the Lord's spoken to you this morning, I'd be glad to pray with you, pray for you, whatever it might be. I want to give you that opportunity to respond to what you've heard from the Lord this morning. So we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to be standing down front. Let's go ahead and close with a time of prayer.